Good morning. I'm sure there's other places in the world where you can worship the Lord and see snow coming down on beautiful pine trees. But not many places in the, in the world. To me, it enhanced the worship. The question is, will it distract you in the preaching? Thank you very much. Yeah. Um, so let's just ask God to guide us. Father, just guide us this morning in your word. And... Um, Teach us about families, Lord, and our responsibilities and roles you've given to us. And the end purpose is to bring you glory. So guide us through your word today, Father. In Christ's name, only because of him we can talk to you. In his name we pray. Amen. So we are in a part of Colossians that is what's called the family codes or the household codes. It's a, in, in ancient literature... Many people, um, not just Christians, but in secular literature, a lot of household codes that were common instructions to husbands and wife, to children and parents, to slaves and masters. Very common thing in the ancient world. The Bible has them too. But the Bible's household codes, codes are very different than the secular ones because of the redemption we have in Christ. What we need to filter through today's message is that we are new men and women in Christ. We've been talking about it for weeks but this passage today, it's, it's, it's um, talking about husbands and wife, parent, child, and slave master, need to be filtered through the passages Brandon brought us last week. 3.15 says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. So what does that do to the family? What does the peace of Christ rule in our hearts? How does that affect how we live as a family? Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. So how does the scripture and what God tells us affect our families? And lastly, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to him through God the Father. Excuse me, giving thanks to God through him. The idea of glory of God. I, I would argue here in this one, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31 says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do the glory of God. I would suggest to you doing something in the name of Jesus is the same thing as doing it to the glory of God. Brandon implied that last week. So the, these parameters, now he goes into the family codes. So that's why we need to interpret it in light of this. Is, peace, is the peace of Christ ruling in our families? Is the word of Christ ruling in our families? They're dwelling richly. And do we have the motive of our family life to bring honor and glory to God? But what we got to do first, though, before I read the passage, I want you to think of a couple categories with me. I've talked about them before. It's the idea of certain scriptural commands are either culturally bound or universally applicable. And the ones I've always used before are a culturally bound imperative in scripture. I've used this before. Is Christians, greet one another with a holy kiss. It's a command. It's mentioned three times in scripture, maybe four. And... How many of you did it this morning? Brandon tried to kiss me this morning. <laughs> but um, um, it seems to be a culturally bound command. The, the culture Paul's writing to, it was a common occurrence to greet each other with a kiss. In our culture here, it's not. Other cultures, it is in our world today. You understand that? So what do we do with it? Ignore it? No, we look for the principle behind it which is affectionate, godly greetings. And we do that by handshakes and hugs, right? Well, then there's other commands like love your neighbor as yourself. That's not culturally bound. That love, neighbor, self, every culture has them. 
possibly what it looks like as it plays out might be a little different culture to culture, but you don't have to look behind it. It's, it's a direct thing. Today, we're going to look at the relationship between men and women and slaves and masters and ask, how do we apply this today in our culture? Are, they, are these commands culturally bound or are they universally applicable? So that makes sense, the categories? We, we have one, ladies, that you're told not to wear, you're told to wear a hat in church. Cover your head. The only head coverings I see in early men wearing beanies. Because it tells men not to cover their heads. <laughs> Thank you for putting your hat on. <laughs> see, that, that one we determine is culturally bound. But there's a principle in 1 Corinthians 11 where it talks about it, and that is respect. So, but the sign today of a lady wearing a head covering or a man not isn't, doesn't refer to respect at all. See, with me where we're going today. Then this is not easy to do, dealing with husbands and wives. And I'm not saying I've got it all figured out. I don't. I'm always evolving in how we apply God's word to our lives today. And you need to do the same. So, my first point. Marriage, the two becoming one is the foundation of God's work. Okay? When I say the two become one is the foundation of God's work. By the way, I forgot to mention. Last year, Ron and I brought a series on the family that, that about one year ago now. I don't know, we spent a good three months on it, Ron. We talked about marriage and multiple levels, raising children, and, and all these things. So I, I don't want to repeat a lot of that. You can go back on our website to the January, February, March sermons and read some, or listen to some of these. But I want to focus in on some specific things. And first is the concept of God in creation, made male and female, in his image, both full image bearers, brought them together and made one. It says, the man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one. That oneness is the foundation of God's work. And that's not an exaggeration. That's the first thing he did in his creative work. After he created all things, then he creates humanity as the pinnacle of his creation and, and establishes marriage as the first human covenant. So it is the foundation of God's work. So you, you understand that. It's important as we move forward. Marriage as two becoming one. I suggested to you last year, I'll just, I, won't, I won't spend time establishing it, but I suggested to you my belief that God has established in the home and in the church that God has called men to lead. And I know that that's not always a common popular thing to say today, but I believe God created Adam first, then he created Eve second. He, he, he created her and said, Adam's helper. But help her to do what we talked about last year? What was Eve to help Adam with? Do you remember? Tell me you remember sermons from a year ago. <laughs> See, God had gave this couple, this oneness couple, a commission. Multiply, fill the earth. Can't do that alone. And then have dominion over the earth. And so that is God's will. And Adam, I'm charging you to lead in this and I'm going to hold you accountable. And so Eve was created to be Adam's oneness partner, but to be what's called his helper. And the, helper, the word helper there is not subservient. It's not, it's not a derogatory term because most of the time in Scripture when the word helper is used, it's God is our helper, same word. So, but that oneness would accomplish God's will. So a lady, Eve, was given to Adam not to accomplish Adam's will. Men, you get that? Men, you get that? <laughs> Eve was given to Adam to become one to accomplish the will of God. 
sin comes in and messes with it. So I, I believe before the fall, you have this unity, this harmony, and this oneness, equality. I believe that is still today in our marriages. So there's this idea of ontological unity. In essence, in essence, man and women are equal at all levels in their essence. But functionally, in life, we carry out the roles God has given us. And ladies, if that's, you struggle with that, struggle with it, please. Go to scripture and struggle with it. But Christ and the Father are essentially one. Ontologically, they are one. There's no, there's no difference between them. They're both fully equally God. But the Son submits to the Father. The Son carries out the will of the Father. But there's no, there's no lesserness. That's, is that a word? It is today. So that's the way it's supposed to be in our marriages. But post-sin, it got messed up. And I would suggest to you what we call patriarchy. Patriarchy is a dirty word today, isn't it? It's a four-letter word. That I would call it cultural patriarchy, rose its ugly head and suppressed women. So it was supposed to be man and woman coming together as one in full equality and accomplishing the role of God or the will of God through individual roles given to them. Post-sin, men turned it into, I'm the boss, you do what I say. And world history proves this out. And the Roman Empire lived this way. Paul is bringing correction to that, how to live in the culture of the Roman Empire with this identity of two becoming one and God asking the man to lead and holding him accountable for that and asking the lady to be the helper to accomplish God's will. How does that look in a Roman world that subjugated women something terrible and children? So that's what we're going to look at today. All right. The 21st century is quite different than the first century Rome. The first century Rome was deeply patriarchal. Women did not have the same rights as men, not even close. The purpose of marriage was not based upon a love of becoming one. The purpose of marriage was to bolster society by producing children that would be heirs, specifically boys. So, and the father controlled that. We'll look more at that in a moment. Today, this marital oneness will and must look very different as we apply these scriptural commands in our cultural context. Paul is applying them to his cultural context. And I would suggest to you, though Paul has the spirit of God writing this, he's also someone who Roman Empire culture is the water he swims in. Do you get, do you get that imagery? Does a fish know it's in water? Frank thinks so. I, I have no clue. I'm not a fish. But it's the only world they know. It's like the air you breathe today. So Paul's world is the Roman Empire's culture. And he's bringing scripture to bear on it. He knows what part of that culture is evil. He knows what part of that culture is neutral. And maybe what part of that culture is good. And sometimes it's hard to decide what's Paul saying. Today, men and women are seen as equal under the law. Women can do and hold the highest positions in the land. Still, there's an inequality that is being leveled out, but there's still inequality in our culture that we need to continue to correct. But huge advances have happened since the first century. Huge advances have happened in the last hundred years regarding men and women, how they're seen as equal. So let's look at, 
this idea of submit and love through a different filter than our cultural filter, but through a biblical filter. So with that, let's go to Ephesians chapter, no, no, I'm sorry. Let's go to, um, I skipped it. Let's go to, wow, I was supposed to read this a long time ago. Colossians 3, 18 and 19. 3, 18 and I, I was supposed to read this before I said any of that. Wives, submit to your husband as is fitting in the Lord. Remember the context here of being new, having the word of Christ dwell in you, the peace of Christ dwell in your family. Wives, submit to your husband as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Um, some translations say do not be embittered with them. In other words, is the, is, the, is the command here, husband, don't be harsh with your wife, or husband, don't get bitter from your wife's activities. The verb can be translated either active or passive. You have to decide from the context. So, so with that, what I want to do, though, is I want to show you how the context of these commands to submit and love must be seen in the context of marital unity. It's not in the context of control, authority. See, men, when you start saying, I have the authority to do this, sin is entered in. I really believe that. It's not that God has given me authority and power. He's actually given me a role that is a responsibility he's given me to lead my family to do his will and an accountability that comes with it someday. Do you get that? So whenever we start talking authority and power, the man has authority and power, that's this, what sin has done to our relationships. It's a responsibility and an accountability that we all have from God. So what I want to do now is the subtitle in your notes, The Marital Unity is God's Visible Metaphor for Christ's Unity with His Church. This is where I want to hit it. Ron preached on this last year. I just want to bring it home to you again. Turn to Ephesians 5 if you can. Open your Bibles. If you need a Bible, I'm not sure the ushers are still in the room. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. Someone might bring you one. Okay. Ephesians 5. I'm going to read this whole passage to you. This passage here expands what Paul's saying in Colossians. Paul spends one verse on it in Colossians. This passage expands it. But what I want to look for you here, what you see here is, <clears throat> is the relationship your marriage is supposed to have as it reflects Christ's love for his church. This is, this is um, as Paul says, this is profound. We stop at the human level of marriage. The motivation is sometimes my, my reason I get married is I want to be alone. I want to be happy. Teresa keeps me from being alone. She makes me happy. That's a fact. And, but marriage is way more than that. Way more than that between her and I. I, ho I hope I make her happy. Um, it is a, a reflection as we are one and live a life of godliness in our marriage. It reflects Christ's relationship to his church. So we are the visible metaphor of Christ's love and adoration of his church. So let's read that here. Ephesians, it's not Romans 5, it's Ephesians 5. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. 
Tall order, ladies. Tall order. Here's your tall order, husbands. Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that he might be holy, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. Just lost my place. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. We'll come back to that. Because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respect her husband. So Ron preached this passage, and he took this idea of wives submit at the very first verse and wives respect your husband as the last as, as synonyms at some level. And so if you wonder what submit means, go back to Ron's sermon last year. I'm not going to sit here today and explain submit to you because we've done that before in sermons. I want you to understand this concept of, of ladies coming alongside your husband as a partner with him, full equal partner, and you're being one to accomplish the will of God. That as he leads, this idea of submission, what does it look like today? That's the cultural question we'll ask in a moment. But men, as you adore your wives and love them and live for them, as Christ lived for his church, he lived and died for his church and gave himself up for her. Husbands, that's our calling. So this is to both of you, but I want you to husbands to see this. Verse 29. For no one ever hated his own flesh. This is a relationship of how you men love your body, take care of it, and how Christ takes care of his church, his body. No one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. So husbands, this is a, a great responsibility you have. The way you treat your wife, the way presumption is you love and cherish your own body, so love and cherish your wife that way, just as Christ loves and cherishes his body, us, the church. Do you see the weight of that? Incredibly beautiful. But so husbands, as the ones called and taken more accountability before God or given more accountability before God to lead in our marriages, the way we treat our wives reflects Christ's love for his church. So we have an ability to show the world how much Jesus loves and cherishes people by the way we treat our wives. Unbelievable. It's an amazingly tall order given to everybody, both men and women. But I want to highlight that for you men. What did you being called to today? Does that make sense? Spend time meditating on this passage. Paul says this is a profound mystery. He teaches about marriage, which is very practical. But he says what, what's really important here is how this is a metaphor for Christ and how he treats his own church and how the church responds to Christ. We can learn a lot here about how we treat each other in marriage. But here's my question now. Is the command wives submit culturally bound or is it universally applicable? 
I don't see many heads doing much. It's kind of like you're waiting for my answer before you agree with me or disagree with me. Here's what I believe is not culturally bound. The two have become one in full equality. And we begin in roles by God and how he wants us to accomplish as a couple, the two becoming one, how we accomplish his will. And he's asking men to lead in that and ladies to join their husbands as partners to accomplish God's will. And he's going to hold men accountable and he's going to hold ladies accountable for the role he's given us. In the culture of the first century, as I said before, women had minimal rights. Um, they were just above property by law. And so what was, these, what was normal was for ladies to submit to your husband in that culture. There was no other option. Today, I would suggest this to you. I, do, I still believe the word submit is a good word. But we need to ask, what does it look like in 21st century marriages? And I ask myself, I have never once, Teresa, I've been married 16 months, 16 months, <laughs> 16 years, here in about six weeks. And um, I've never once said, submit to me. Never once. One time it came up in our family talk when our daughter, I'm the stepdad, and she's the mom, the birth mom, looked at me and said, you've ruined everything. Mom and I had it together, but you came in and ruined it all. It's the only time, it's the only time this conversation ever took place in our family. My daughter and I, she's my daughter, have this phenomenal relationship. She was 14 then, she's 27 now. But this one time, she didn't get her way, you ruined everything. And Teresa said, Michaela, God has called us as a family and asked, God has called Tony to lead this family. We're going to follow him. And that established something in our marriage that came off her lips, not mine. I'm the man of this house. You'll do what I say. As soon as I get there, what happened? Sin has grabbed hold of me. The flesh has grabbed hold of me. And because now I want to control. Teresa did it in a manner that it never came up again. So for me, the word submit is not part of my relationship with Teresa at all. I'm not saying it's not a valid command today. When we together come together and we talk about how do we raise our kids, how do we, how do we approach this world, how do we represent God in this world, how do we accomplish his will in the world, men, you're going to be held accountable more than ladies. And you know what proof of this is? One proof of this? Adam and Eve were married. They sinned. She sinned first, he sinned second. Who does God hold accountable? Adam. He's held accountable. He's held much greater accountable. We die because of Adam. We're sinners because of Adam. That's what the New Testament says. So you've got to figure out in your marriage how we culturally apply this idea of a lady submitting to her husband. What does it look like in your daily life as you recognize this is my equal partner who is one with me. We are both full image bearers of God. Who our culture is moving more towards that. And I think it's a good thing. That we must live out the commands of God in our culture. So I'll just stop there. You can work on that. Talk to me. I'm working on it. How I understand scripture. The next point though is healthy families flow from a healthy marriage. Let me read Colossians 3, 20 to 21. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. So this is a very short thing, this family code. 
Children, obey your parents in everything. everything. So does everything mean everything? Are there no exceptions to everything? Talk back. Are there no exceptions to everything? A parent tells a child to sin, should the parent, should the child obey? No. My opinion, no. So I do, I do believe a child has an accountability to God too first, over accountability to parents. But on earth, there's no greater accountability among humans than a child to the parents, and they obey. But when a parent leads the child down the road of sin, I think the child should say, Dad, no, I'm not going to do this. That's, that's my conviction. But obedient children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. So most of our kids are downstairs now. But so if there's any kids in here listening in, in the weeks ahead, if you want to bring a smile to God's face, it's to obey your parents, follow their lead. It's, it's a beautiful thing when parents, when children obey you when your commands are reasonable, isn't there peace in the home? When children don't obey, but basically, what's that like? Pain, frustration. The idea here, let's do the the 21. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Interesting, verse 20 says parents. In Greek, it's the word parents, mother, father. In Greek, the second word is just the fathers. So why are fathers being the ones, and Ephesians says the same thing, why are fathers being singled out to not provoke their children? Ephesians says provoke their children to anger. Um, this one says provoke your children lest they become discouraged. You can, you can take the wind out of a sail of a child. You can break their spirit, be another translation. And many, many Christian parents have broken the spirit of their children by controlling commands that are not reasonable. I remember, um, I have three sons. One, one was adopted as a teenager. Before him, before he came along, my, my oldest son who's 42 now, my other son's 38, I think they were about 11 and 7. They were in the other end of the hallway and they were fighting. And I had had it. They're fighting and bickering and, and arguing and, and loud. I'd had it. And so, so I walked down the hallway. I, mean, I stormed down, took my belt off, and the belt knocked pictures off the wall. And it's like God stopped me in my tracks. And he said, what are you doing? First of all, I, I don't, I'm not against corporeal punishments. Bacon, I'm not against it. But that day, I was out of control. And if I would have taken that belt to the kids, that would have been disobeying this today of provoking my children and bringing great discouragement to them, possibly another step in breaking their spirit of wanting to follow the Lord. And I'll tell you what, pastors sometimes are the worst offenders because we have this image to uphold and our children need to make sure, I want to make sure my children uphold my image, which is a bunch of baloney. I'm so glad my kids today don't say, I don't want nothing to do with your faith because of the way you treated us. I'm so glad they don't do that. Fathers, do not provoke your children as they become discouraged. In this first century culture, David Garland said this, a commentator, the father decided whether a newborn child would be raised or exposed to die, granted permission for his children to marry, decided whom they could marry, and even forced a divorce. 
Fathers are addressed in this command, not mothers or the inclusive parents, because the father had absolute control over the lives of his children, even after they were grown and married. An early philosopher named Dionysius says this, the lawgiver of the Romans, so the Roman government, the lawgiver of the Romans gave virtually full power to the father over his son, whether he thought proper to imprison him, to scourge him, meaning whip him, to put him in chains and keep him at work in the fields or to put him to death. So that's the Roman culture of which Paul is addressing. Most of those things today, dads, you go to jail for doing those things and should. So we live in a different culture today. A culture today that has taken our children and made them little idols. And so we do everything that rotates around the children. And we make sure that they get to all their sporting events and all the activities that are good for them. And I did that growing up. It's all good stuff. But I wonder today, parents, if we've gone too far in trying to meet every want of our kids, possibly maybe living through our kids. Um, Ephesians 6.4 says this, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Those two words, discipline and instruction of the Lord. There's our responsibility, fathers. Now, today in our culture, I don't own my children. I can't do what I want with them. Moms and dads are partners in this. Our culture has fixed that problem from the Roman Empire. They're not my property. So we do it together. And often you ladies are the primary disciplinarian in a home. Where often in the ancient culture, fathers were the primary disciplinarian. So those kind of things, culture develops. And we live within that culture. And if it's not ungodly, we usually follow without even thinking about it. But to raise our children up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Discipline is the act of providing guidance for responsible living. The act of providing guidance for the responsible living. Our children are going to become adults someday. The way we treat them now will determine what kind of adult they will be. And so that's why I say, I, I, with my kids old, it's kind of like I had my shot. I have some influence now, but, but, but much of my um, f forming their heart and mind is past. So I want to tell you that are in the, in the middle of it, learn what it means primarily to discipline your children, that is the act of providing guidance for responsible living. Instruction goes the negative, to counsel about avoidance or cessation of an improper course of conduct. So children, here's how you are to go through life. And children, don't go down this road. And often we will say, just don't, don't, don't. Don't drink, don't smoke, don't chew, don't go with girls that do, you tell your son. That was funny, I thought so too. We don't teach them the role of alcohol, the role of sexuality as a gift from God. We just say don't. And we need to teach our children about life so they can enter into adulthood where they don't believe they're the center of the world and they know their responsibilities. I would suggest to you the child-parent relationship is the second most important relationship in God's creation. First is husband and wife. Because what did God establish in Genesis 2? Multiply, fill the earth. You two 
image bearers who I've made one have children now. Those are the first two relationships God developed. Okay. What to do with slavery in the New Testament? Usually when we preach through these household codes, we get down and say, well, we don't have any slavery, so let's look how we employers and employees act in, in, in the world. And that's a legitimate application. It's not what I want to do today. I want to ask why. Let me read it to you. It's interesting. We have almost twice as much on slaves and masters as we do on parent-child or, or husband-wife here. Why? Why is Paul spending so much time on slaves and masters? Here's what I'd suggest to you. Coloss, it's very much another picture. Coloss, the city of Coloss, in the letter to the Colossians, arrives in the city of Coloss at the church the same time as the letter of Philemon arrives. It's the very next letter in your Bibles. The letter of Philemon is one chapter where Paul has led this young man named Onesimus to the Lord while Paul was in prison. Somehow Onesimus probably got arrested, got there. Paul leads him to the Lord. Onesimus becomes a partner in the gospel. Then Paul finds out, hey, he's a runaway slave. And he ran away from a guy named Philemon in a church in Colossus who Paul knows, who Paul led to the Lord. So the penalty for runaway slaves is what? What can the master do? Kill them. So Paul sends Onesimus back. And then writes a letter to the slave owner, Philemon, a Christian who owns slaves, which is totally objectionable to us today. Different culture. Paul is swimming in the waters he lives in. Some say between 10, 15 to 40% of the Roman Empire were slaves. I looked it up and it's everything from 10% to 40. It's all over the board of what people say, different sources. The slavery there was different from the slavery in the United States. All at the core of it, you own somebody. And that it seems to me to be horrendous. But the slave Roman Empire was about those you conquered in war became your slaves. Those indebted to you become your slaves. All sorts of different contexts to where it wasn't, it wasn't first and foremost racially. It was socially, economically, war and all these things. And doctors, lawyers... Accountants may have been slaves. So all levels of society are slaves. Different ways carried out, but to us equally objectionable. So the commands here, culturally bound or universally applicable. Let me read them to you. Slaves, obey those who are your human masters in everything. Not with eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord and not for people. Knowing that it is from the Lord that you will receive the reward of the inheritance, it is the Lord whom you serve. For the one who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done, and that without partiality. Masters, grant your slaves justice and fairness, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. So Paul doesn't condemn it. He tells a Christian how to live within it, whether you're a slave or a master. Why doesn't he condemn it? Wouldn't you like to see that, just condemning slavery right here? In our Western world, it wasn't condemned until, until it took a long time. But, but in the early 1800s, William Wilberforce in England 
led a campaign for much of his life to stop the slave trade in England. And there's a movie called Amazing Grace. It's a movie of that story. It's an amazing movie. Um, the, um, in America, you know the history better than the English history. It took us to the Civil War. And then, then decades and decades still to figure out how do, we, how do we live now in a society that says we're all equal. Why do we do these things? It's not simple. But Paul, Paul is not first and foremost coming into the world to change the cultures of the world. So listen to me carefully. We don't see instructions in Jesus or Paul to come in that we become cultural warriors to change the culture of the world. What Jesus came to do was to redeem you and to change you. What Paul came to do was to proclaim the gospel and how do you come to faith in Jesus Christ Become the new person you're supposed to be. And then as you live that new life individually, as we live that new life corporately, and as we lead other people into this and we grow and grow and grow, the culture will change. So, so if, if we are social justice warriors that simply want to change culture, but people never get to know Jesus, we haven't done our job. Does that make sense? And you, you guys don't have to agree with me, but if it makes you, makes you think and go to the word... I, I, that's what I want. So Paul does not condemn slavery. I wish he would have. It would have made us easier today. Why does the Bible justify slavery? That's a complaint against Christianity. A complaint against Christianity. I said that twice. He regulates how you as a believer live within the cultural evil. And so today we don't have slavery here. And everybody said? Amen. More enthusiastically? Amen. But many countries in the world do. So we don't apply this today specifically because we don't have slaves. I don't, I'm not a slave owner or a slave. But many countries do. And if they do and they read this, this is what they're to live under. These are the biblical principles of a person who is a slave in a culture that has slavery, no matter how unjust it might be. And if a Christian becomes a slave, excuse me, a Christian becomes a, a Christian who's a slave owner becomes a Christian, they're to follow this. But there is this overall movement in our world to eradicate slavery from our world, and it's a beautiful thing. And guess what? A lot of it is due to Christian influence, and we should be deeply involved in eradicating it as we bring the gospel to bear upon it. If we simply spend our time eradicating slavery, that's a good thing. But the bigger picture is we eradicate slavery because Jesus Christ died on the cross to redeem us from slavery to sin. And we apply that now to how we live our life every day. So Paul wasn't called to speak against the culture per se in this matter. He's called to bring the gospel to bear. And the principle there, whatever your relationship is today in the world whether you are under authority anywhere, would be there. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord and not for people. Knowing that it is the Lord, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance, it is the Lord whom you serve. So, a lot of you hate your jobs. You believe your employer is unjust, unfair, and you have the freedom to say, adios, because you're not a slave. 
But until such a time you make that decision, this is your attitude and this is my attitude. I work for a great organization. You expected me to say that, didn't you? <laughs> so back up. Wives, submit to your husbands. Slaves, obey your masters. Masters, be good to your slaves. Things today that rub us raw because culturally we have a different cultural emphasis. Whether good or bad, we live in a different cultural, we have different water we swim in. You, as a student of the word, you have the Holy Spirit, you have a Bible, you have a brain, and you have the people of God to interact with. Apply yourself to things like this. In your marriage, talk to each other. What does it mean, wives submit, husbands love? How are we, how are we playing this out, Teresa? And why are we trying to apply these things? As you and I figure out the will of God for us. And Teresa and I are doing this right now because in three months, um, I'll no longer be the pastor of this church. So what's next for Teresa and I? It's not going to be, well, this is what, I, this, this is what God told me we're going to do, Teresa, and we're going to do A, B, A, B, C, D. Now, she's amazing. She'd probably say, okay. And if you're wrong, you've got to talk to God about that. I, I don't want to lead that way. I want to say, we are one. Let's talk about our future. What are we going to do? But you guys got to figure that out, what it looks like in your marriages. Okay, now I'll just start rambling. So, why don't you stand with me? Takeaway today is in the flow of thought in Colossians is you've been taken out of the domain of darkness, transferred to the kingdom of light. Make sure, husband and wife, that your relationship reflects the kingdom of light. That the imagery of Christ's love for his church can be seen in your marriage, men. And the imagery of, of the church follows Jesus can be seen in your marriage, ladies, as you guys are one. Parents, that... You are new in Christ, so you lead your children different than the world does, possibly. And your goal is not to be their best friend. Your goal is not to make them like you. Your goal is to raise them in the instruction and admonition of the Lord in a manner that as they leave your home, they say, I'm going to keep following the Lord because of the way my parents follow Jesus. So, Lord... Whatever the particulars are of the interpretation of these passages, how we apply them today, Lord, we're never going to agree on that. You, you know that more than anybody. But we do want to be faithful to your word as we understand it. Teach us to humble ourselves as we read your word to learn what you're asking from us. Teach us to listen to one another and views maybe that differ with ours. Um, but above it all, Lord, as our purpose statement says, we want to do all this so that when people see us, you are glorified in our families, in our church, in our workplace. Please, Father, that's who we want to be. And we hope and trust today's service has honored you as we sing another song to your glory. In Christ's name, amen.